Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us yet again. And today it's Tom's Day. And uh, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll go around the horn and introduce ourselves too. Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I have a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. And I'm uh, C.R. Wiley, a, and I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And I got a few things I want to get out of the way. We have an Indiegogo campaign. We, we really need to make sure we note that, and we're making good progress. We're almost halfway to our goal. Uh, people have been pledging. I think we have uh, 26, 27 people who have pledged. So thank you. If you're one of those people, we really appreciate it. It's a big help. It's uh, going to go a long way toward helping us uh, do some things we want to do to improve the show. Another thing is uh, our friends at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network have a big conference coming up in Nashville, October 1st through the 3rd. And uh, to find out more about that, uh, we'll have a link in our show notes, but you can always just go straight to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network website and learn about it there. And our own Glenn Sunshine is going to be one of the speakers, so we're excited about that. And then the last thing I wanted to note is I'm wearing a special t-shirt today. It was sent to me. I, I get stuff like this sometimes. People, people send me stuff. And uh, so this is from my friend, Tim Adams. We're kind of online friends. I've never met Tim in person, but Tim is down in San Antonio, and he sent me this shirt, and he said, make sure you wear it on a show. So here it is. This is a Templars. I think I made, maybe I said that already. It's a Templar sign. It says it's got the Templar code on the back, which is really cool. And anyway, thanks, Tim, for the shirt. So enough of that. So, uh, Tom, what are we talking about? Okay, before we talk, I am uh, hiding in a cave. Yes. It's, um, I'm running from all the iconoclasts around and, and those uh, running around breaking up items of history and ideas and culture and the like. And this was uh, Topova Monastery in Moldova, which uh, actually the Soviets had their eyes on once upon a time and shut down. But uh, I imagine what is behind me is also uh, things that were preserved. Um, so anyway, the topic of the day. Um, we talked about this topic before, um, but not in this direction. And it, there's a word, presentism, which is going to kind of uh, explain a lot of uh, what's going on in our culture, in our world, in the academic world, but in the popular world. And then we're going to relate it to a few other ideas um, to see what it looks like, where it comes from, why it has the shape it has, and why it has the direction it has. So there's a lot of, I've got to do a lot, lot in this. So we'll see so, how it goes. Yeah, now, presentism and iconoclasm, uh, do they, in your mind, always kind of go together? I kind of think they do. I think there's a strong connection. Um, it, 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 maybe you could, we could talk like iconoclasm in, you know, Glenn could probably speak to this more, but say, for example, during the Reformation, where there was a strong urge to purify Christendom in light of the pure word, right? And so anything that looked like it attempted to domesticate God, materialize God, became fair game for destruction as, as um, you know, making a graven image and worshiping it. Um, you also had the iconoclast 
uh, controversy, 7th, 8th century, between Western and Eastern Christianity over the issue of these gems behind me. And that is whether or not you can depict um, Christ. Of course, I don't think the, the debate, I think often in the debate, people were arguing against different things, and orthodoxy was trying to be very careful that the depiction that it saw as allowable in light of the incarnation is the depiction of the humanity of Christ. But because of their unions, you never could separate the two, and therefore you owe a certain reverence. But this reverence to the humanity of Christ was very different than what you owed to God. So they made a distinction in terms and devotion. They were much more connected to the ancient world where you sort of had reverence for, say, an emperor or a hero, and you had certain forms of honoring, but they made a very careful distinction that this dulia latria, this was not worship, this was, was honoring. So, but that, that debate still goes on, I think, to this day, although I don't think, uh, I think Catholicism actually, Roman Catholicism went in a, a stronger direction than Orthodoxy ever would, because now it not only allows for dimensional figures um, in devotion, but also sometimes is allowed the depiction of deity, like the Father, which, which never would have happened anyway. So iconoclasm, though, um, quick, you had quick, something. quick note, historically, it wasn't a conflict between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. It was a conflict within the Eastern Church. Turns out the Western Church actually supported the patriarch and use of icons. So it's just sort of historically, just as a, uh, a note, it's internal really to the Eastern Church. At this Into, okay, okay, good, good clarification there. Um, so, so what we have going on here is a, a um, passion for true religion based on sound theology. So what is going on in the various struggles within Christianity is fidelity to proper worship and service of God that did not violate the commandment. And the big debate with, with e, in, the, in the first controversy was whether or not you, could, you, you should use the uh, pictures in worship, especially in relationship to God. In the Reformation, it was, it was very different. It was the materialization, materialization of grace and, and a whole lot of other issues. Um, so passion for the purity of, of worship. Um, or the ideal, you know, a pure expression of ideal. So anything that fell short of it sort of was, was uh, open or fair game for, you know, destruction or, or at least dismantling. Um, now, I, I think one could say certain strands of Puritanism also would have been a culture around this kind of, of, this kind of uh, prescribing the parameters of, of what is ideal and, and pure religion versus how much it tolerated of anything that, that went outside of those parameters. Now, I guess the, the thing I was kind of getting at is, is that when we think about, say, purity mm -hmm. um, and the, the desire to expunge anything that might tincture the pure, we've got lots of that. You know, we've got that, uh, you know, with, with regard to what was going on with the, with the Soviets. Yeah. They weren't concerned about whether or not the, the icons were, you know, idolatrous. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> they, were, they were concerned with how the past was going to sort of ruin 
their dream for the future. And so they wanted to uh, uh, obliterate, they wanted to get rid of all that. And then the same thing you said for the Cultural Revolution. I think something like that went on in, say, you know, Afghanistan. I, if, if you remember, you know, the, the yeah. uh, Islamists were blowing up statues of, of, of Buddha you know, in different parts of, I think it was Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, this, this whole, uh, this whole sort of cultural violence, uh, this whole, this whole tendency to sort of, uh, say that we must obliterate the past in order to have the future we want, or even the present we want is what I'm kind of getting at. Yeah. And I think that, that, that clarification is significant because I do think in Christianity, we, we are, always called to be weaned off of our idols and purified in our loves. I mean, that's the whole point of true knowledge of God, communion with God and, and true religion. Um, you know, um, putting off the old, putting on the new. Um, and so within Christianity, for example, that, that struggle is for the most faithful um, enactment of, of, the Christian faith. So, so it is tied to a tradition and a history. Um, the, the iconoclasm that tends to happen in it would be more geared towards warring against something that, that uh, as part of that tradition and history is a violation of it, its, its central claim. This is very different than the kind of iconoclasm you may see today in the sense that it is borrowing that kind of moral zealot, zealotry from a, a sort of, uh, you know, from, from somewhere else because its own, its own resources can't provide that moral zeal. And then what it's doing is it's placing a certain ideal, which it depended on a, a lot of the history it's trying to destroy to even have. And it's sort of, in a, you know, Lewis said, in a, in a snobbish sense, seeing itself as the most self-righteous for which it can condemn everything that came before it is not, not embodying, which, of course, makes it very vulnerable because the next stage of, of moral consciousness is going to turn on it as, as, as a failure to realize the ideal. Uh, Nigel Bigger at Oxford University is a ethics professor. I think he has to actually do his seminars in a cave now because he should have the nerve to defend some of the, the goods of, of uh, you know, uh, British culture and its history. And so he really, even at Oxford, has to hide in, a, in his basement to do his, his lectures. Right. Um, but he, he once said a very important point. He said, more blood has been shed in the name of moral idealism. And, and he's talking about the, the purest views of religion, the most ideal types, or secular or, or just, you know, any other kind of idea or philosophy. Anything that falls short of the absolutely perfect measure is fair game. And so presentism in, in a weird way is, is something that makes the immediate and the present take hold of this pure ideal. And so, and, and so um, you know, I'll, I'll give a, defin a good definition that was provided by Graham Good in an article called Presentism postmodernism, post-structuralism, and post-colonialism. Um, and the post, <laughs> is, the post is significant because it has no teleology and definition to itself. Everything has to be post something else. 
Um, of course, he begins the article with uh, Orwell, whose name keeps coming up more and more relevant these days. He says, from a totalitarian point of view, history is something to be created rather than learned. Totalitarianism demands, in fact, the continuous alteration of the past, and in the long run, probably demands a disbelief in the very existence of truth. Um, and then the, then the author defines presentism is the belief in the primacy of the present and the refusal to be guided by a vision either of the past or of the future. It repudiates historicism, which we'll get to, and holds that we cannot know truth of the past as it really was, and we really can't, there is no telos or teleology towards which anything is going, so therefore the immediate takes on all significance. And, um, and so it will become obvious that this can't stand on its own, but you can see how this sort of allows for a certain ripping up out of certain traditions, histories, and roots, a certain ideal or a certain moment of time, if you will, it makes it everything and therefore allows this kind of experience of the now and what we believe now, what we think now, what we hold now, to have this sort of weight um, that will allow it to be connected to some other things that, that allow it to kind of enhance this rigorous conflict with history and the past and any kind of um, goal to, to a future. Right. I think one, you know, there are, there are you know, a clear... Uh, dangers that we see with uh, enthusiasts for the pure whatever they've got in mind and it's a lot easier um, well there's actually a kind of thrill to destroying things yeah. there, there really is I mean you know if you've ever stood in front of a fire and just watched it it's kind of fascinating um, and when it's somebody else's house that's burning down it can be quite you know enthralling yeah <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but these, but actually building something yeah. is very, very difficult. And you, it, you're working with crooked timber. You're work, you're working with the world as you as as it's presented to you. And until a person has actually built something, he has no right to tear anything down. I think you know. Years ago, I had a, a mentor who told me a story. And this guy, this was a guy who was pretty significant guy. He uh, actually had a fortune. He was a Fortune 500 executive at one time, and he'd started a multi-million dollar high-tech business, um, and uh, funded by of all people Ray Kurzweil. <laughs> <laughs> and and what he saw, what he told me is he he had a mentor who told him once, you should not be allowed to hire someone until you've had to fire someone. In <laughs> other words. Uh, it's when you've experienced kind of the downside of reality or the difficulties of, of actually working with the world as it is that you have a right to mess with stuff to, you know, so people who are enthusiasts for, you know, tearing things down, who've never done anything noteworthy, anything that they could actually point to and say that I, that's, that's something I'm proud of. I, I, I just can't give them any, I, I just can't take them seriously. Yeah. Well, and that goes to the thinness of the kind of what they put all their moral weight on, and, and that's just an, a blank present. 
Um, what, what is it about the, I mean, if you even think about, I mean, what you're saying um, could be applied to what they perceive as significant in the present because the present is not something they built. It's something that they're a, a participant in and someone who receives good and bad. And they're as complicit in all the good and bad as anyone else is. So this, this notion of, of some people are pure versus other people are not simply, simply doesn't understand the way, in which we're, the way in which we've benefited in every kind of way, and there's no escape from, from it. Um, and even the most noble ideas that we have and the most high ideals are those that we're inheriting. We're not coming up the, with these things anew. In, in a sense, there isn't anything new under the sun in this way. And, and so it's very similar to having, you know, it's, it's, it's a form of ultimately disrespect of parents, and we know where else it goes from there. But, I mean, it, it's the same thing that a, sort of a teenager who owes its whole existence, everything it has to its parents in general, um, and therefore all of a sudden knows better than the parents about every single thing on the planet, right? And so they get to, you know, give them give them the power and then they get to burn down everything the parents have ever done and every memory of it and everything else. And all of a sudden, what are we left with? And, and you're exactly right. I mean, um, the person of the same article wrote this notion, any long-term view of human history, uh, destiny, of course, for these presentists is anathema, but all it ends up producing is uh, simply a jumble of short-term activities because it doesn't have any, form, structure, goal, direction. And this is, this is very similar. Once you burn everything down, then what? These weren't the people who built it, not the people who know how to build. And so they're dependent, again, on, on the builders, on all of those things that drive the, the frustration to begin with. And so there, there's no way to get out of it. Um, but one of the things I think that, that's worth noting is how, how in the world does something like that take off? I think C.S. Lewis talked about it, again, with chronological snobbery. And, and in this cer certain moves in the Enlightenment, certain arrogance, a certain arrogance, you know, Kantian man again, um, ar arises in which the human being believes that it's able to kind of transcend the whole history and, and it, its nature and history in such a way that it almost becomes lord of it and free of it and sovereign over it. And therefore the perspective of that kind of Lord almost becomes sacred in its own right. It becomes, it becomes, it grounds itself as, as significant, meaningful, and true for that person. So the perspective and experience of the person is more significant than, every, than anything else. And even Kant's whole notion is, okay, the mature person is the one who dares to use his own thinking. There is some truth in that. You have to grow up and start to take responsibility for, for one's life and actions. But Kant meant something different than that. It meant throwing off the tutelage of everything before and sort of becoming the, the ground of your own mas mastery of everything. I, th I think we need to make a, a distinction here because I suspect that some of our listeners uh, will take what you just said in a direction that I know you don't mean to take it. <laughs> so... Uh, when people use the word transcend, you can mean it in a couple of senses. One mm -hmm. sense is that in, in a personal sense, you can kind of sort of set yourself over something. Yeah. And then transcend, it's in a 
traditional Christian sense would mean that God is over everything and that there are things that we can tap into like goodness, truth, and beauty that actually do give us an eternal sort of sense or meaning that's not entirely contingent upon historical, you know, sort of phenomena. Now, the reason why I think that there's a lot of confusion on this score is because uh, ideology is is a, a modern phenomenon, whereas uh, the understanding of the transcendent in the past was uh, something that t- tapped you into the permanent things, things that are r- true in you know in, t- in the sense that that C.S. Lewis was referring to when he talked about the Tao. Yeah, and so I you know. Yeah. We we've gone into this many times, but I but many many of the people I I run into really uh, when they hear words like reason and transcend and things like that, uh, they're actually you know thinking in terms of sort of the Kantian man, yes, that kind of thing. They're not actually at all familiar with how Christians in say the first century would have been thinking about those things. Yeah, that's right. It's it's like um, yeah. I mean, Lewis talked about the sublime is the way we interpret the beautiful now, rather than 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 you know the way in which we're cultivated to experience beauty the right way. Um, so yeah, it, it's the very thing. Is is when I when I'm using the terms here, they're very much the modern well enlightenment appropriation and redefinition that is a moving away from a lot of what the classical heritage meant by them and gave them. And so when I talk about sort of um, this notion of the present and presentism um, as being the most significant thing for us and what is of utmost value, um, I'm talking about a way in which people who think in every other way we're basically stuck within a flux and we're, we're, we're enslaved to it. And so the only way to kind of rise up above it is is to to enact ourselves into the moment but our ina- our action is not to be directed towards anything of 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 ultimate significance because there isn't anything of ultimate significance other than what's important to us now and of course this allows a certain leveling of things because if the now is significant, then the past and the future don't really have the, the kind of significance that they did for most of history. Maybe, Glenn, uh, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but maybe it'd be important, and you'd probably be able to speak to this, Will, um, the way in which history was considered, for example, the way tradition was considered to be a, a good and a valuable thing towards cultivating us versus something we needed to be liberated from, which is, which is something that's around today. Yeah, well, you know, when you look at the uh, Catholic world, the Orthodox world, tradition with a capital T is an, a source of authority that is equal to scripture. Now, particularly in the Catholic world, tradition means from what it sounds like it means. Um, but even if you move into Protestantism, though, you have a sense particularly, you know, up until really Pascal, maybe Descartes, somewhere in that region in the 17th century, you've got a sense that your surest guide to the truth is the past. Uh, the assumption is that uh, any society that is not built on truth is built on a lie, and therefore it can't stand. 
So if you find a society that, has, that had staying power, that lasted, that endured, it had to have a firm handle on truth. It certainly didn't know it exhaustively. It, it collapsed after all. But you always go back to the past to find truth. Um, in Latin, the word auctoritas means both author and authority. Mm. The idea is that your past authors, because they are witnesses to the truth that was known by these great civilizations in the past, are therefore authorities that you can rely on. Now, there are always limits on this, but what's really striking is that if you look at medieval thinkers through at least the 13th century, the goal to produce the great summas, the Summa Theologica, uh, Summa Contra Gentiles, um, you know, from uh, Aquinas, and the other summas, the point there was to collect and synthesize all of the knowledge that we have acquired from the past. Um, this is the project of Renaissance scholars as well, largely because they, medievals realized that this was impossible and they gave up on it. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing summas, when you're getting into the 14th century, 15th century, they're doing quodlibets. Quodlibets yeah. being the Latin for whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, writing about whatever, a small topic. But Renaissance thinkers, if you look at people like Marsilio Ficino or Pico della Mirandola, uh, these guys are trying, they don't call it that, but essentially they're trying to do the work of the Sumas to accumulate all of the knowledge from all the different successful cultures in the past together because authors are authorities, because a theme called the decay of nature, everything in nature goes through a life cycle. It's born, it grows, it gets strong, matures, then it begins to decline and ultimately collapses. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Everything does this. Uh, people do it, trees do it, rocks erode. It doesn't matter. Society is the same way and truth is the same way. So if you want to know the truth about something, you go as far back as you can to the earliest origins before the decay of nature can set in. So, yeah, I mean, and this is fundamental to the way people were thinking in Europe well into the 17th century. So there's a sense that they exist in continuity with the past. You know, the, the quote that's usually attributed to Newton, but actually goes back to uh, one of the scholars at Chartres, medieval Chartres in the 13th century, uh, 12th century, uh, we're dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants. If we further, it's not because of our stature, but because of the stature of the people we're standing on. You know, that is the attitude. They're anchored in the past, and they draw everything from that. They appreciate it. You know, the thing, though, that I think is true, even with presentism, is that it's a tradition. And yeah. What I'm getting at tradition is... Tradition in a different sense, yeah. That's right, that's right. We, we, are, we are the tradition of the non-tradition. So yes. people are, in our country are, and in the West, at least in the modern West, are born into presentism, and they, they adopt it, not because they've worked it through or anything like that. It's just a, it's kind of a process of culture, of acculturation. Yeah, yeah excellent point. My, I remember my first night living in, in Oxford before I started my doctoral study. And so I figure, you know what, I'm going to go out, go to the pub, meet some locals. Well, one of the, one of, I go to a little, little one uh, at the end of um, Norham Gardens, not far from there. And there was a lot of undergrads in there. Um, and, you know, they'd been drinking. They'd been kind of, they're all philosophical at this point. And I, I, this, this young guy just started uh, chatting with me. And one of the things he said was he asked me some kind of idea. 
And so I, I gave him a few different quotes from other people. He goes, well, that's very nice for you to quote some other people. Uh, he goes, but what about your own ideas? And I quoted him where the idea that what about your ideas come from and that it wasn't an original idea to him. So until he could give me a question that was original, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. He just cheered me and then, then kind of walked away. But I mean, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the whole notion of uh, presentism or that uh, you, you're, 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 you have the capacity to g spontaneously generate a purely original idea is the product of that tradition um, that, you know, sort of, I, I call it Kantian man and that, that enlightenment. I mean, that's, that's just a shorthand for that. Oh, kind in of in the American scene, we might talk about Emerson. Yes. Yes. And, and, they're the, and then it's very attractive in the American scene because of the enlightenment input into the very fabric of, of the, the American life. Um, it, it, you know, you go, you go to Jefferson's uh, Monticello, this stuff is everywhere. Um, but there was also an appreciation of the classical tradition. This is one of the very strange, I think this is what you see gets pulled apart eventually, and what, what explains a lot of the, the conflict in society is this pulling apart between this, the radical aspects and the enlightenment with the classical tradition um, that, that, that went into other forms of it. Uh, that, that's a, another thing. But one of the things that you get here is then the next generation can't really hold presentism too long. So they are presentists in the sense they have no loyalty to the past. It defines and determines very little for them, even though they indwell a certain history. Um, but then it doesn't really define and have any direction to it. So then they're going to have to pull from somewhere. Um, but before I mention that, um, it, it's worth talking about Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche was one of these... Uh, figures that, of course, he, he sort of had some prophetic sensibilities, uh, despite all the other uh, flaws that he had. Um, and one of these was he, he, he saw the, well, he saw the day coming because he saw teleology going away. And I think he also saw where historicism will end up. And I'll talk about historicism in a minute. But he saw a day when, when you would have a culture that would finally admit that all of its narratives and, and, and were myths all the way down, and that, that truth was really nothing more than uh, a society or a group embracing a, a, a deliberate social construct in order to, to preserve its life and protect its, its power. And so he, he, though, politically, would have been on the side of, of the strong person. He would not be for the underdog. He hated Christianity because of what he called its, its, its support of the slave culture and slave revolt. He thought it was weak. Slave morality. That's right. Yeah. And, now, and couple, just, just as a quick note, it's not because Christianity supported slavery. That's right. That's so right. We're clear here. It's that Christians themselves were slaves. Because were slaves and they supported the full dignity of the humanity of yeah, you know, what, what, what Nietzsche loved to, to make fun of is what do slaves like? Slaves like mercy. Yes. And, and, and this, yeah, well, this is where it's going to go. So what you have is, is Nietzsche said, okay, all history is nothing more than the creation of a large-scale myth or narrative that it says is, you know, as we learned from, from our feminist teachers, is his story, right? The, the powerful one gets to tell the story. 
And this allows them to stay in power and then keep things going. And he said he didn't find that a problem. He actually said that's a good thing. He, in many ways, would have complete, he, you know, wed this to Darwin, right? Survival of the fittest. If, if the end game is survival and, and, and dominance, well, then this is the best way to do it. Why fall for this kind of have mercy? All that's doing is weakening, weakening your survival and your flourishing. So get rid of the weak, hold on to the strong. And so develop all these things, but let's not play this kind of morality game. So his, can, again, I, can I jump in here for just a moment? I, I, there's something that you hear said very, very often that it sounds sort of like what you're saying about Nietzsche, the idea that history is written by the winners. Yes, yes. As a historian, I just want to note that history is written by historians. <laughs> anything but winners. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, I just want to get that idea in here. Because you see, the problem with that theory is that if that were the case, there would never be any critique of the winners. Yeah. And yet what we see constantly, especially in our culture, is the dethroning of heroes, the dethroning of winners, the dethroning of anybody who succeeded. Yeah. If history is written by the winners, how does that happen? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a, a, a complete, uh, maybe we'll return to that when we get to the historicism point as well. I think that is, that's a complete weak spot in that. But one of the things that Nietzsche tells the story about is the way in which the, the weak and what he calls the slave revolt actually develops collectively its own counter narrative, which gives it in the next generations a kind of truth story that allow it to confront head on. But he says what, what ends up happening is they are able to use the Judeo-Christian notion of mercy and guilt to try to impact those that are on, in the dominance in order to feel guilty to weaken them so that they can actually utilize that guilt to climb up in, in the dominance ladder. And so it's interesting because we see a lot of this. So what, what um, uh, the writer of this article on presentism was talking about is the way in which what we get is a flip Nietzsche, a counterpolitic, in which now the motive of the presentists is to actually, as those who so-called marginalized, excluded from the dominant narrative, start to put together a narrative that is going to utilize all of its resources to bring down the dominant narrative and replace it with the new narrative. Now, this is only at its root a struggle of wills and a struggle for dominance. Because remember, in this Nietzschean and Darwinian picture, the ability to have dominance is the ability to, to continue one's survival as you know, the fittest. Sure. Well, one of the things that always, you know, sort of occur, well, it occurs to me whenever this sort of thing happens, you know, this kind of conversation occurs, is, uh, is this. If, if I, and I'm dealing, talking to an interlocutor who's making this argument, basically my response is, well, if, you're premi you're, if the premises that underlie your argument are, are true, why should I agree with you? In other words, if, if this is all just about power, then I'm just going to win. I'm just going to do what I need to win. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, uh, mean that I'm going to agree with anything you say. I'm just going to do what I want to do to win. Well, so, so now what you're up against now is, okay, here I am. Do you think you can, you think you can beat me? Well, interestingly, 
this is how it works and, and allows, allows for them to think that they can. Okay, so replace Christian, the, Christ, the Christian value and Christian guilt with a humanistic variation of it, right? So what did humanism do? It took the ethics of Christianity, but it ripped out the theological and religious and moral context and then placed it in something else. So what the current um, people who want to basically gain the dominance in terms of narrative and then and then in power are doing is they're utilizing a ethical system of guilt because of wrongdoing, which it owes to Christianity, but it doesn't have any of the moral and religious context. So it's, it's merely psychological at this point, and it's, it's sentimental. And they're utilizing the weak in order to usurp their, 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 their sentimental um, ethical system. And this is the problem with emotivism. Uh, we'll get to that in another, another yeah. show. And sure. This is almost a textbook critical theory. The whole yes. critical theory is built around is just this. I just did a webinar on this yesterday. Yeah. So, so yeah, how many it, people did you have come out for the webinar, uh, Glenn? There were 175 people about signed up for it. I'm not sure how many actually made it. Well, that's Fantastic. great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. But, but I guess, you know, but this kind of gets us back to another thing we've been talking about a lot, and that is sort of the blonde beast, you know, the whole idea that Nietzsche you know, proposes is of, of the, uh, you know, and beyond good and evil, sort of the, the ubermensch who can't be reached. In other words, you cannot use the mercy argument. You cannot use uh, feel bad for me arguments because there's really, if it really does come down to who wins, the eagle does not care about the feelings of the sparrows. It, he really doesn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if, if that's the way the game is played, then Nietzsche's argument is uh, not only do the strong um, owe nothing to the weak because they really, there's no common, you know, sort of basis for, for morality. Uh, the, the, the strong are also the creative. They're yeah. the ones who make things. Yeah. And they're, they're going to come up with something. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because the creative for, for Nietzsche and, and yeah, and, and the, 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 those that were sort of had the capacity for being ubermensch were very connected. That, that flow, you know, for him, it was very pagan. It was this, this, this flow of power. Um, but, but, but we've gone this way many times when we've talked about the neo pagan movement. That, well, that's right. That's right. Those, those guys are all trying to cast off all of the Christian, you know, sort of, sort of uh, yeah. things that, that, that hold them back from what they want. They, that, I think you just, you, you, you kind of pull out the kind of um, the gem inside of the, inside of the shell. The whole aim of presentism and, and even modernism to, to eventually rid the, the moral and religious picture from Christian input automatically eventually creates a vacuum to which the conditions are for this nasty alternative to arise. We, we've seen it already in Western. We saw it with Nazism. I mean, the, the, this has already happened in the West. Um, we well, see and we can look at the history... We can look at the history of the world. All we need to do, do is go back to the Assyrians. Yeah. We have so much data on the atrocities of the Assyrians. And there was, there was uh, 
you know, and that went on for a long, long time, yeah. hundreds and thousands of years. Um, the, you know, is this where we want to go? <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, and, and so, mm-hmm. go ahead. It's interesting, if you read continental atheists, they hold the British atheists in a fairly high degree of contempt. Your Dawkins, your Hitchens, people like that, because they describe them as Christian atheists. Yeah. Yeah. They're Christian atheists because they want to maintain Christian moral standards while completely cutting off the root of it. The continental atheists say you can't really do that if you're going to be intellectually consistent. And so what we need is a totally different ethical approach. Yeah. Typically, they'll go with something like utilitarianism. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, uh, I mean, they, the, the honest atheist sees when they start to pull out, pull out the implications of, of what they're talking about is you can't underwrite other than in a sentimental way a humanistic vision. Nietzsche yeah. is Nietzsche is the honest vision if God is dead. Right. It, you know, I, I remember once they give me Nietzsche, give me Dostoevsky. I mean, those are really the alternative. Christ or nothing, you know. Right. Yeah, if you want to go to pop culture, I would suggest you, you compare Imagine with Dust in the Wind. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's a good comparison. Well, when I was at Harvard, the, the question was, uh, wasn't Dostoevsky versus Nietzsche? It was Nietzsche versus Aristotle. Yeah, you would talk about those two as sort of the cons, but, but I think Dostoevsky puts it in a in a good way too. Yeah, I mean, dealing with the, I think the main main reason they're juxtaposed is because they they both agreed with a certain percentage of things, yet they they ended up going very different directions because of. I think that's that's typically why. But I, w- I want to make a quick point. So what happens with presentism is it can't, like we said, it, you know, it's sort of like this little, little development they're trying out in Seattle. It, it's a lot of short-term activities, but it doesn't really have the, the doers. I've heard it called LARPing. They're live action uh, reality hey, players. Someone role playing. Yeah. Live action role playing. Role yeah. playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, as you were describing presentism, I kept thinking of Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he is absolutely a presentist. Yes. <laughs> you know, or, you know, it's, frankly, it sounds, as you describe it, it sounds juvenile. Yeah. It sounds, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of words, narcissistic. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of words I can, I could use to describe it, none of which are very nice. That, well, that's right. And, you know, I don't want to go off on this tangent, but I mean, I think it's also very characteristic of what we would call the, the, the evangelical, you know, love of, of the, the practically relevant. Mm-hmm. I yep. understand the, signif- the significance for my life. I get that. I mean, Paul, he gives theological content and this is what it looks like. That's very different than this notion of what, how is it meaningful to my story? And, or, um, and, mm-hmm. or what is the current flavor of the month and the culture that we need to jump on? Yeah, that's right. And so fashion, yeah, fashion and presentism go very hand in hand. The contemporary, and uh, Peter Gay from, um, um, uh, I think he was at Yale, he wrote a lot of books on, on modernity and the Enlightenment. And he wrote one called Modernity, The Lure of Modern Heresy. And the first thing he talks about, what is, if you want to sum up modernity, and of course he's aware of what the term means and stuff, or the Enlightenment, 
It's give me the new, give me the new, give me the new. And he understood that in terms of everything, and especially Judaism and Christianity is heresy. Um, and there is a type, like you mentioned, of evangelicalism that ha- was not in continuity with the classical reformers who read the patristics, shared many of their thoughts, saw themselves as the fulfillment of true Christianity and Catholicism, the true Catholic Church, not as an aberration or a new church, whereas the New Testament church that rids itself from this history um, became uh, opened itself up very much to the, this kind of presentism and, and contemporary because it has no roots and it has no connection to the continuities and discontinuities of, of the history of, of Christianity. And so because of that, everything is fashion and trend and it's a, it gets absorbed. I mean, look, what's fashionable now is going on in every pulpit, in every, you know, not every pulpit, but, you know, a lot of them. I think we lost you there, Tom. Can you hear me? I think I know where you're going, though. You're talking about pulpits and how people are sort of catching Following the, the trend between right. being shaped and formed in your material content by that now and then rather than yeah i think we've got the a, a, a bad connection tom so we'll glenn and i will carry the things the, carry things a little bit until you get back uh anyway but you have any thoughts on on what the yeah the the other thing the other question that comes to my mind is um what is the connection between presentism and materialism well we got tom back now maybe you can take that and and uh Send that back across the 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 net there, Tom. Okay, I am coming in now. Again. Yeah, you're I good. I was doing good. All of a sudden, uh, the, you know, I'm in a cave. So. <laughs> yeah, the wireless doesn't work well in caves. <laughs> it's not. I'm surprised it's worked this far. Now, the relationship between materialism and that that's an interesting one. Well, let me let me introduce this, and maybe we can get into it that way. So. One of the things you notice, we know from academics, is a presentism doesn't go so far. So it tends to wed itself to other things. Um, one of the things uh, this article talks about is the way in which presentism marries itself to post-colonialism. And its whole goal is to inculpate the past as a substitute for trying to understand it. The past is guilty, guilty of not being present. And <laughs> history becomes simply a repository of grievances whose historical truth gets an exemption from the otherwise general view of historical truth, um, which cannot be established. So students in Western culture get the idea that everything in Western culture previously is guilty of all of the atrocities. Um, and, and so, I mean, it, the relation of it to materialism, I think on one level, it's interesting because there is a sense in which it's very Gnostic. You know, it is a, it, it's a lifting of its trying to, I think what you find in these materialistic visions is, is this um, constant desire to get what Christianity has and, and classical philosophy has, and that's a true transcendence. It realizes it's stuck in the machine, and the only way it can get out of the machine is somehow as if it can get either above it with Kant or Descartes, or is able to um, basically run along with it. That's a brilliant, um, that's a brilliant insight, Tom. I think that's huge. In, in that running along with it, 
originally is what this group is now against because what allows you to run with it is if history actually had is going somewhere mm -hmm. so you will still hear all these people talk using this 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 presentism along with progress but but they're borrowing they're barring two types of progress, the, the Kantian type, which means we can override it by our, our, our somehow rising above it, or the Hegelian type in which we can be on the forward, the most forward side by being inconsistently with the present, the zeitgeist, where God is now, right? Hegel, God is most present in the new, uh, the new antithesis to the old. So if you're in the new antithesis, you are caught up in the zeitgeist, and so there's a spiritual sense. Now, M Marx would like that whole conflict. He wouldn't have, he, but he was a materialist, and he would have seen that merely as you being an epiphenomena of material forces. Yeah. So, and, and yet, you often wondered, I mean, Carl, uh, not, I want to say Karl Barth, Karl Marx, uh, sometimes they were too close to, to be the comfort. Um, there's a place at which, for Marx, you know, the, the point is to, to change the world, not understand it, right? Here's his, his material. But, but how do you get that at that very point? How does presentism do it? And, and like you said, if it's not guided, not directed, not aimed, it's just enacted, and you're enacting merely the, the consciousness that you've been stamped with by the particular material conditions of the present, Somehow for Marx, that, was an, that allowed you to have epiphenomena enough to have dignity in participating in, in the, the direction of your evolution. But it's, but it's epiphenomenal, which is uh, yeah. derivative and, and not as, is not essential. And I, you know, whenever I come across people who tell me they have you know, an affinity for Marx or sympathies with Marx, I, 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 you probably saw I posted something. <laughs> I said, well, he would have had no sympathy for you. I mean, these, these people clearly have never read Marx, nor do they understand what materialism really means. What materialism really means is what you think is completely beside the point. In other words, this is a process that is a physical in nature, which means that it's, and, and it's, uh, it, it proceeds through conflict, violent conflict, bloody conflict. Yeah. Workers of the World Unite was not just a romantic notion. It was, it was a call to kill. Yeah. And let's not play around with this guy. This guy was bad news. And I think any Christian who thinks that they can pick up Marxist analysis yeah. and be unaffected by this materialistic uh, sort, of out, you know, sort of framework is just fooling themselves. And I've known a lot of these people. Yeah. So, like when I when I talk about this kind of stuff, this is not this is not, uh, you know, uh, ruminating about you know the sort of the consequences of ideas. I know people. I can give you names of people yeah. that I've seen ruined by this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it, it's it's bad. It's it's vile. Now, let's think a little bit. What I would like to do is sort of just propose something. When we think about transcendence in the classic sense, what it does is it gives us a sense of the permanent things, or it gives us, a, yeah. makes it, 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 we're acquainted with the permanent things. And because we're acquainted with the permanent things, 
we can sort things out. So like if I'm, if I'm thinking about someone like Robert E. Lee, okay, there is a guy who I think is a good case study because certain things about Robert E. Lee are things that we can admire. And then there is, there's the simple fact that he was fighting for a, a cause that we cannot support, that, that, that if he had won, it would have been bad. Yes. You know, so now we can sort this out if we're in touch with the permanent things, if, in the things that transcend the historic moment. And what that implies, too, is so was Robert E. Lee capable of that? Now, in one sense, we could say Robert E. Lee is even more blameworthy in a certain respect because he knows what's right. He's not just a product of history, yeah. but he's still involved in history, and he's part of our tradition, and there are things we can learn through him. I mean, there are, there are positive things. You know, I, I think if I, if I were to say, what can I learn from Robert E. Lee? I, there's a certain statesmanship that I see in Robert E. Lee. There's a certain uh, stoicism. In Robert E. Lee, there's a certain um, ability to endure, you know, through hardship in Robert E. Lee. But uh, does that mean I endorse the Confederate cause? No. I'm able to sort things out. Well, yeah. and, and I think that what, what we have, like, in, in those cases as well, is, is that, that I think any attempt to actually understand history is is done. Um, so I think most people are, are, are looking at these as either saints or sinners, and rather than, than, than um, aspects of a very complex history that sheds light on the dynamics and dimensions of the way in which history since then has unfolded, to actually move away from what was wrong about that history, but also take those aspects that are permanent, whether wherever it is, and, and develop those out for the dignity of all human beings. And so that's what history does is, yes, you're right, each historical figure as a human being. Uh, look, uh, C.S. Lewis once said something that, that you know, was quite shocking. They said, uh, he was talking about some, someone who was having a conversation. And he said in the conversation, said that the person had seen Adolf Hitler. And he goes, well, what did he look like? And the guy said, well, he looked like any man. He looked like Jesus. And so the point was, I don't agree with Hitler. I don't like Hitler. I don't subscribe to anything he's about. But on the other hand, he's a human being that's a part of history. And so if I'm going to understand him I don't have to put him in a, a special class of historical interpretation that says, I need to rip this out and not place it in the full evaluation of history. Rather, I need to understand it historically, <laughs> properly, that here is someone whose, whose idolatry and sin has so clouded and distorted their humanity so that even though they're made in the image of God, it's so distorted that they enacted the most heinous evil upon a society and humanity. But you rip history from any remembrance of it, and you, you rip learning what we can learn from history, and then, yeah, we are in that cliche. We're at a place where we're going to reenact it, because the wisdom we should have learned from seeing that human beings— 
made in the image of God, but sinners are capable of greatness and the most depraved things, um, which none of us are exempt from fully. And so that was his other point. Um, it, you know, it's, it's Adam, it's Christ. In other words, th that whole range between the dignity of humanity and the depravity are all embodied in what it means to see another human being. Yeah. Um, history teaches us that. Well, that, that's what, and, and, and you know, I, I, I noticed something today that uh, I think is really important. When we think about scripture, particularly Hebrew scripture, one of the things that's always arrested me about it is here we have the patriarchs with all their warts. I mean, we look at Abraham, the father of the faith, and he does some stuff that, you know, just raises your eyebrows and say, wow, I, I, I could never do that. <laughs> you know, or I think I can't. Or, no, no statues of Abraham in your yard. <laughs> but, but what is it about? What is it about a truly, you know, sort of Judeo-Christian, however you want to frame it, outlook that, that allows you at one and the same moment to honor your ancestors and see their faults? See, that to me is key. That's huge. If we can manage that, if we can say, you know what? Yes, we, we had George Washington. He was a great man in many respects, but he was also a slave owner, and we don't approve of that. To me, that's maturity. Yeah. It's not this foolish, childish, juvenile need to sort of expunge any connection that you have with this person. We owe the man too much. Well, and, and likewise with that is the assumption that we are, we are more righteous than other human beings, and we wouldn't get caught up in, in similar things had we not been at different times and places. Look at the amount of people that who were who grew up around a strong western lutheranism evangelicalism in the life that became nazis because of the power of the mob and the power of you know so this this was my point is that that to to think that we can't get caught up in it is a form of of naivety that sets us up for the worst kind of delusion and in getting involved in it. I mean, this one of the things tied to presentism and this notion that I stand in a snobby way superior to the past is that somehow I'm self-righteous. We see this all around. The new Pharisee, right? The one who, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not a part of this system. I'm not a part of this. I'm not a part of this. If you were actually to change the emphases of what sin happened to be, let's say it wasn't uh, an issue of how much you benefited from power in a country like America who tries to, to, dispense, to disperse it, um, let's say it's the fact that the technology you have is made in slave shops. How many of these people would be guilty of that? So what if the standard of righteousness at this point was who was guilty of using technology made in slave situations versus not? How many of the communications of the whole world would be implicated in that? And why? Right there, that's, baby. that's right. And so this, this is what we're talking about, the way in which privilege... I just tweeted how, how, how horrible right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. If you feel so bad because you just used your iPhone, right? <laughs> But, but I mean, this is the kind of, this is the thing Christianity didn't, doesn't underplay. You know, they're none righteous, no, not wrong, wrong, right? The heart is desperately wicked. This is not an excuse for not weaning off of idols and becoming pure in our loves. It's not an excuse for stasis. 
It's actually the ground of, of true of true reorienting of loves and action. One of the things I was thinking about today was asking sort of rhetorically, what's worse, physical intimidation or, ment- or, or psychological manipulation? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've seen both. And uh, I think that we are living through a particular episode of, of extreme psychological manipulation. And often, uh, ostensibly, ostensibly, weak people are capable of great uh, psychological manipulation. I've seen little old ladies who are on respirators who are putting people through hell. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> playing with their minds, playing with their emotions, playing the guilt, guilt games, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. power, when we talk about this kind of thing, it's, it has a way of sort of playing on people and, and manipulating people. And uh, so I've already kind of revealed my cards. I think that psychological manipulation is worse. Yeah. I, and I, that's not an endorsement of physical, you know. That's right. <laughs> no. <Worship. laughs> we have one to qualify of, everything these days. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I'm struck by uh, in this, again, just because I just did a webinar on, on critical theory, is that the way this ends up working out is you always have people who are villains. You've got villains and victims, mm-hmm. oppressors and oppressed. And all of the problems with the victims are because of the villains. All the problems with the oppressed are because of the oppressors. The reason why the black community is facing so many areas of dysfunction, it is all racism. Now, that particular argument, I'm not denying the reality of racism, but what that's basically saying is that the black community is completely helpless to do anything. It's removing all agency from that. Yeah, yeah. Which it strikes me as being, you know, they complain about um, the, the, the whites taking power away from the blacks. That argument itself takes power away from them in some really pretty stunning ways. And the problem is that all cultures have things in them that reflect the good, the true, and the beautiful. All cultures are also fallen. So to argue that this culture is fallen and that's causing all the problems in the other culture ignores the problems of that culture's fallenness. And it also ignores the good, the true, and the beautiful in the, in the first culture. I mean, we need, to, we, we need to recognize both sides of the equation all the time. Uh, this certainly applies to people in the past. I, I regularly assign an essay, was Christopher Columbus a hero or a villain? And you would be pretty amazed to um, read some of the answers here. Um, you know, th- things are much more complicated. They're not quite so black and white when you're dealing with, with real life. And that's the problem, it seems to me, with a lot of the presentist kinds of things where you're taking one particular set of standards derived from right now, from the last five minutes, and trying to apply them over the past 500 years. Yeah. Um, and, and by, by the way, also apply them selectively. Well, so that, that, yeah. So that we can condemn the Europeans for their conquest of the Americas, but we never talk about the Aztecs slaughtering tens of thousands of their neighbors in the name of their gods. Yeah. Well, and this is what I mean by the the complicated way in which a a full 
understanding of history is. And I, I think Chris's point earlier about the way uh, the Bible presents its saints, right, it is not this ripping them out and making them an ideal type. Every one of them depends on the grace of God for anything it is about them that allows them to manifest the true, the good, good the beautiful. Um, and it is nothing that is from their own set of resources. They have a part in it, they, but they are not, they, they're, not the, they're not the source and, and the, the substance. And uh, Harriet Harris, who is a, I don't know if you know her name, she was a, a very outspoken uh, liberal theologian, and she, she was once speaking. I, I went actually to Have you ever Harris. met a liberal theologian who wasn't? That's right. Well, anyway, and she was always uh, in debates with the St. Ebbs crowd in Oxford. And she, but I did go one Easter, and I, I think more than curiosity, went to hear her. Uh, she was actually giving a talk at St. Mary's. And to my surprise, I actually, uh, I actually uh, left with, okay, she actually had something interesting to say. Um, she, she was talking about the way in which she went to a seminar at Cambridge University where they were talking about the way in which a lot of the idealism that, that impacted Christianity made its saints so perfect almost that, that they became untouchable and unreachable and that that type kind of distorted the way the Bible presents its, its key figures. And then she was talking about the article and compared to the way, of course, the um, Old Testament presented its its figures. They're you know King David. Their their sin, their injustices, their their being marred by all that is there. But what makes them great is not because that they are the the people in which they somehow perfectly manifest something. It's the complicated way in which God's grace invades that life and makes it something significant, despite the fallenness and the, the, the misdirection that we get ourselves into. And, you know, and she interestingly defended at this time Mel Gibson's presentation of the Passion of Christ, even though everyone was sitting around there claiming him to be an anti-Semite, because she was saying that to say that you can only have a perfect person represent um, truth is about the gravest error in anti-Christian. I was actually stunned she, she presented this because it goes against the idealism of liberalism. Well, you know, it, you know one of the things that was it's kind of been kind of interesting, I've been reading some Jewish commentary on the Old Testament recently, and, and one of the things that struck me uh, as um, really noteworthy is the fact that the Jewish commentary does not look at Joseph in Genesis, the way Christian commentary tends to look at him. Right. Christian commentary almost makes him like the golden boy who never did a thing wrong. <laughs> you know? But in Jewish commentary, they see lots of compromise in Joseph. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, the whole thing, you know, you know, in terms of adopting you know, Egyptian practices and stuff like that, they always thought of him as a kiss-up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and essentially... Jewish commentary uses Joseph to say, you shouldn't be a kiss-up. You shouldn't be a brown-noser. Look wow. at what became of Joseph. <laughs> he ended up bald and wearing makeup in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> and he enslaves the people, and he does yeah, all kinds of yeah. other things that are really, you know, not things that we should be cheering. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, Joseph says some great things, you know, about God's providence, and that we can say amen to all that. But particularly the Reformed, have a way of, of making a plaster saint. We know how we're, we Reformed yeah. just hate plaster saints. Yeah. We make a plaster saint out of Joseph. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there there is, and this I think was her critique as well. And it's 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 you know I think it was a valid biblical point. Um, you know, what is it? Uh, sometimes they, sometimes God speaks out of Balaam's ass. That was my old joke. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but even a liberal once in a while can say <laughs> no offense. <laughs> Well, if we lost our liberals, that's okay. <laughs> we all know that liberals just, they're just great people who can, can take jokes. <laughs> Actually, Luther at one point apparently started off uh, a lecture by saying, well, God once spoke through the mouth of an ass, so maybe he'll do it again. <laughs> have, have you ever read, you, I'm sure you've read some of his sermons, uh, Glenn. I mean, they, oh, they yeah. would get me defrocked if I were just to read them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Karl Barth actually hid in his house, Luther's works under a chair because they were kind of naughty literature. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I, I would have never so, imagined. On so that we, note, we should probably wrap things up. Well, uh, we, yeah. we should probably include the Lutheran insulter in the show note. <laughs> so people will understand. Right, right. Yeah, he had a way with words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's, he is just clear proof of what we're talking about. Well, that's exactly right. Very complicated. And again, yeah. if you're looking for a plaster saint in human history, yeah. you know, you're not going to find one. I mean, the, the reason why we praise Christ and we say he's the son of God is because he's not just like anybody else in certain right. respects, you know. And so, um, and by the way, he got mad and yelled at people. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, insulted them even, yeah. even demonstrated a contemptuous attitude at times. <laughs> I had a situation here recently where people were like, uh, is contempt something consistent with, you know, what would Jesus do? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I can think of a few instances exactly where, yeah, contempt was exactly what was going on. <laughs> yep. But anyway, we should probably wrap things up here. Glenn, do you have anything you want to say in conclusion? Uh, yeah, it would have been nice to get to historicism. <laughs> Another another time. Yeah. Um, uh, just as a uh, personal advertisement, I'm going to, uh, on our Facebook page, I'll put up a link to the YouTube video for the webinar if people are interested in critical theory and race. That's great. Thanks for, thanks for mentioning that, Glenn. And uh, anything else you want to say, Tom, as we wrap up? Uh, no, it's like I said, I think most of these topics drive themselves. There's so much content you can start bringing into them. And yeah, historicism we'll have to get back to because I want to relate these two. But I, th I think really summing everything up is that, that when we look at history in, as ideal types in the sense that anything that diverts from that ideal type is, is a corruption of it, a distortion of it. Um, this owes itself to a certain kind of pagan understanding Christianity should have rejected. Um, I think a full biblical picture is not that we glorify the sin and that which is wrong about people, but the God who actually takes sinners and brings them into conformity to his will purposes and ultimately is perfection. So maybe that sums up the different kind of view of history. Yeah, and I think as a Christian, we would say that anybody who uh, is trying to make a plaster saint of someone that's a human being is doing something that's, uh, you know, not reflecting the truth of things. Um, yeah. Even the best of us have, have things that uh, the grace of God still needs to, to address. But okay. anyway, 
if, if I can throw in one, one historical example that is, I think, kind of interesting. There's a, an Irish saint uh, who's credited actually with having performed uh, at least one miracle. Uh, his name was Samson, and he was a bishop in the church. And whenever he signed his name, he always signed it, Samson Peccator Episcopus. <laughs> Samson the Sinner, Bishop. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a good way to, to end the show. That's a, I think that's the appropriate note. Anyway, we thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we appreciate your support. We know there are lots of folks out there who listen because we get all kinds of feedback every week. Uh, we get notes, and, and we appreciate those notes, and we try our best to respond to them, although uh, we don't do it as well as we should. But anyway, thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.